Hi, I'm Carmen LeBurge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge. Your daily encouragement that God has the world in the hollow of his hand. This is Mornings with Carmen LeBurge on Faith Radio. If we're gonna fly, we fly like eagles, arms out wide. If we're gonna fear, we fear no evil. We will rise by your power. We will go by your spirit. We are bold. If we're gonna stand, we stand as giants. If we're gonna walk, we walk as lions. Good morning. Good morning. It is the twentieth of September. I'm Carmen LaBerge. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen on the Faith Radio Network. Good morning, good morning, good morning. We ordinarily start with the Growing Your Faith verse of the day. I'm actually going to hold that off until the top of the second hour. Um, So stay tuned, listen up, sign up for it online. All right, all right, here it is. 1 John 4, 7 and 8. Dear friends, let us continue to love one another. For love comes from God. Anyone who loves is a child of God and knows God, but anyone who does not love does not know God, for God is love. Now, for my exposition and commentary on that passage of Scripture, you'll have to tune in at the top of the next hour, because I want to say a couple of things here at the outset of this hour, and, you know, we run out of time. So, during a football game on Saturday between the University of Oregon Ducks and Utah's Brigham Young University, Some people in the crowd supporting the Oregon Ducks yelled what I will describe as a bigoted chant. And because this is Christian radio, I will not tell you what they chanted. Um, But suffice it to say, it was not uh, appropriate language for a family crowd at a college football game. What's being made of it is um, not the word that rhymes with duck, but the word that was used to characterize members of the the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, which is the formal name of of the church and how they require themselves to be known in public. And so they regard it as inappropriate to be called Mormons. So Mormons is how the Church of Latter-day Saints Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, has historically been known. And so Brigham Young is a private university in the state of Utah sponsored by the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, whose members are known as Mormons. And so the um, chant is regarded as now um, religiously bigoted. That is the charge being being levied. The University of Oregon apologizes for, quote, despicable chants directed at BYU fans and their religion during Saturday's college football game in Eugene, Oregon. So footage of this very explicit, what is being described as anti-Mormon chant during a football game by, you know, I don't know, three or four people out of 60,000, has really created quite a conversation um, about religious bigotry directed at Mormons. And the reason that I lift this up is because nobody seems terribly concerned about the word being used, which you hear all the time, everywhere in the culture today. I won't use it here because it's grossly inappropriate for any Christian to use in any context. But here's the, you know, here's the the language being used to, 
you know, say we're going to we're going to root out the religious bigots um, here. So this is from the University of Oregon's uh, vice president for the Division of Student Life. Quote, the university apologizes for the despicable chance made by some University of Oregon fans at today's football game with Brigham Young University. There's no place for hate, bias or bigotry at the University of Oregon. So do you see that you see that the problem is not that they were chanting a word that starts with F and rhymes with duck. The problem uh, apparently is not that. The problem is that it was directed at a particular group of individuals. The statement from the university goes on, these actions are simply unacceptable. We will investigate. We will call on the students and campus community to refuse to accept or tolerate this type of behavior. Not, not, not the word that I find grossly offensive as a Christian, but the fact that it was directed at a particular group of people. Now, let me ask, do you think that the University of Oregon is going to be able to, quote, um, have their campus and their students refuse to accept or tolerate this type of behavior? I, I don't think so. Because the people who did this are simply going to say, um, everybody does this. Everybody says that word. And aren't they Mormons? I mean, if you have ever chanted, let's go, Brandon, you have made this statement in relationship to the president of the United States. I find that morally reprehensible and despicable behavior. But I know a lot of people who say, let's go, Brandon. Freedom of speech, right? Freedom of speech. To the Christian, I say... Galatians 5.13, you were called to freedom, yes, my brothers and sisters, but don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but that you might love and serve one another. 1 Peter chapter 2, 16 to 25, yes, live as people who are free, but don't use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as servants of God, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Don't say things you ought not to say about or to anyone. Revere God and fear him. Listening to Mornings with Carmen, I'm Carmen LeBurge. Next up, we're going to have a wide open conversation with Mark Caleb Smith. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Hey, joining us now, Dr. Mark Caleb Smith from Cedarville University. Good morning, sir. Morning, Carmen. How are you doing today? I'm well. I'm well. Um, I like debates. I like when people running for an office are willing to stand up and engage not only with each other, but with the serious questions of the day. Um, lots of candidates in this in this cycle not willing to debate. That is a conversation that's happening nationally. But a couple of people willing to debate, and it um, raises questions about 2024. California Governor uh, Gavin Newsom has challenged Florida Governor Ron DeSantis to a debate. I find this pretty interesting. Yeah, pretty interesting. Uh, Highly unusual, that's for sure. Uh, Neither one of them are obviously currently president. Neither one of them have formally run for president or announced they're going to run for president. But uh, the only way this makes sense is if both of them are 
really strongly thinking about running for the presidency. Um, and it also gives us this different dynamic we've seen. You know, a lot of, uh, whether we like it or not, a lot of politicians now are really just looking to increase the spotlight that's on themselves. And if you can do something like this, if you can have a debate or at least uh, offer to have a debate, uh, get a little bit more attention, raise a little bit more money, position yourself as a leader of your party, uh, it's hard to see a downside to this, at least from a political point of view. I think maybe it comes down to which one of them gets to be called the Sunshine State. Because I think California doesn't really want to be called the Golden State anymore, and nobody uses the word Eureka like as its motto, right? And so I think it's a contest. I think this is like a debate over which state is going to lay claim to the Sunshine State. <laughs> it's really, it's really interesting because these are these are interesting two, two interesting personalities. Uh, Gavin Newsom has generally been seen as being far too radical and far too progressive to be considered seriously as a presidential sort of person. Uh, but by throwing himself in the middle of these conversations, he may be changing that dynamic a little bit. Um, so yeah, it is it is a really interesting development, I think. And of course, all this comes up in the context of immigration primarily, which is really what they what they're arguing about, uh, even if they are arguing with each other. So you you think I'm kidding? But see, I, see, I see commercial um, use ahead for for the phrase "the Sunshine State," particularly for the state of California, which wants to go green and intends to um, expand solar and uh, and wind and desalinization. I mean, on and on and on. Like, right? And so, I, I don't know. I um, it, it used to be known as the land of milk and honey, but see, I don't think they want that anymore. I think they want to be known as Sunshine State. So we'll see. We'll see which one of us is right, whether or not it's really a run for the presidency or whether or not it's really a contest for a state motto. I know. I th- you think I jest, but I'm, I'm just writing on the wall, man. Wait for the writing on the wall. Um, you and I have both read um, a, a, a pretty extensive piece in um, Real Clear Religion on religious liberty beyond the red-blue divide. Could we unpack that for, um, for folks when we come back? Yeah, Absolutely. Yeah. What does religious liberty look like beyond the division that we experience in this country as polarized red and blue? That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen. As you know, this is a rebroadcast of the live radio show carried on the Faith Radio Network. There's a lot going on at Faith Radio. Tons of free resources just waiting for you and for you to share with others at MyFaithRadio.com. How does that all happen? Well, it happens through listener support. So Faith Radio, Mornings with Carmen, all available because of listener support from listeners, well, just like you. If you're a supporter, thank you so very much. If you'd like to become a supporter today, just visit MyFaithRadio.com. And again, thanks for being a part of what we do every day at Mornings with Carmen. He was a famous trumpet man from all Chicago way. He had a boogie style that no one else could play. He was a top man at What if I told you that religious liberty is not a partisan issue? You would probably say, well, hey, but abortion is a partisan issue. And that's based on, you know, religious conviction or even responses to COVID-19. That seems like, you know, people had uh, religious convictions related to that. And that ended up being a partisan um, divide. All right. Religious liberty as a partisan issue. Yes or no. Dr. Mark Caleb Smith. I think certainly the perception, as you said, is that it's been a very partisan issue. Uh, We've associated it mostly with conservatives, uh, with Christian conservatives, arguing that their religious liberty 
uh, should prevent them from uh, should be able to prevent them from doing things like uh, requiring healthcare policies that have uh, abortion elements or abortive fashions uh, as required medications, for example, uh, or someone like Jack Phillips claiming, you know, that uh, his religious faith shouldn't allow shouldn't be used against him. Uh, and and he should be, shouldn't be able to be forced, I should say, uh, to perform a same-sex wedding or something like that. But I think there's a lot of evidence that uh, religious liberty certainly flows in both directions when it comes to the partisan divide. Uh, often, uh, minority religions, very small religions, uh, fit into more of a progressive category, for sure. Uh, and often, progressives want to see uh, those minority religions recognized. And so, uh, who's arguing, for example, that when the military funds chaplains, uh, that they should fund a Wiccan chaplain just as well as they should fund a Methodist chaplain? Uh, that's generally a progressive argument that gets made as opposed to a traditional conservative one. So, yeah, I think it flows in both directions. Uh, but unfortunately, sometimes religious liberty just collapses into a political issue where it's used back and forth as opposed to really this uh, foundational constitutional idea, which is what it should be. So when we look at this uh, this project called Religious Liberty in the States, which is scoring oh. and ranking the 50 states on how well each one protects religious liberty through state law, first of all, the fact that something has to be protected through state law suggests to me that it is not simply protected um, in the, you know, in the shared morality of the people. I mean, is that fair to say that you have to concretize something in law when there is some disagreement about it among the public? It is fair to say to a point, um, you know, we tend to think of religious liberty as what we call a negative liberty uh, that's protected by government doing nothing. And so like you're like you're suggesting there, the fact that you have to pass state laws dealing with it says that maybe there's something else going on here than just a, a negative liberty. Uh, a lot of these state laws deal with exemptions. And so which is a pretty common way that we've seen the federal government and state governments deal with religious liberty. And an exemption is when the government passes a generally applicable law and then carves out an exception uh, for religious interests. And so, uh, you know, if you want to pass a law that requires people to recognize same sex couples and same sex marriages in a variety of contexts, but then you can create an exemption uh, for religious people who don't want to be forced to perform same-sex ceremonies, for example. Um, and so a lot of those laws are exceptions. And uh, you could argue that maybe religious liberty is a little bit unusual because it has all these exceptions built into law, uh, unlike something like freedom of speech, for example, which we really don't see this kind of legislative approach. Yeah, that is really, really helpful. Um, and I think that, you know, if you're listening right now and you don't know what the religious exemptions are in your state across a number of categories related to, um, you know, carve outs for people whose religious convictions prevent them from being able to comply with generally applicable laws. Um, that might be an interesting thing for you to look into wherever you live. Um, hey, Mark, I want to um, I want to have you unpack for us a little bit what's going on in the Trump document investigation. This is related to documents seized from the former president's home in Mar-a-Lago. A special master has been appointed. That is um, something that we're not very familiar with. So can you bring us up to speed on the special master appointment in this case? Yeah, it is. An, it's an unusual concept. You know, I'm, I'm not a lawyer. You know, I'm not a litigator. I've never practiced law in that, in that you, sort of you sense. Can play one, you can play one on radio. It's okay. However, that's right. I've, I've been assured <laughs> by people who are litigators and have done sorts of things that special masters are actually relatively common 
when it comes to certain kinds of disputes. So, you know, high level dispute between two companies, for example, where there's a suit being filed and there are documents being gone over um, in order to, you know, to sift through for evidence. Often a special master will be appointed as sort of a third party to come in and examine some of this documentation uh, to figure out what's applicable to the lawsuit and what's not. Uh, this one's just unusual because it involves a former president of the United States. Um, and there are a lot of questions about what role the special master would play, um, how much authority the special master will have. Uh, the Trump the Trump people requested this because they wanted this detached third-party person to go through the documents that were seized to determine if there were instances of privilege involved, uh, to sort of comb through and decide whether maybe there's an executive privilege issue, whether there's an attorney-client privilege issue, and then, of course, ultimately, maybe whether there really is indeed classified material. Uh, the Department of Justice has been combing through these documents for a while, and so there's some people who think that the appointment of the special master is just kind of a moot point, that these documents have already been gone through, they've already been categorized. Um, but the district judge granted the request for a special master. Um, and so Raymond Deary, a formal, former federal judge, has been appointed to the position. Uh, but it's already complicated. He's asked the Trump campaign to make some uh, claims about classification when it comes to the documents that he's going to go through. And so far, the Trump campaign is resisting making that sort of a pronouncement about whether or not any of the documents were declassified. And so this is, I think, the end result here is going to be that the special master is going to delay this process maybe significantly. Yeah, and um, just, to, just to be sure people understand what's been asked and now refused. Um, so this, this special master, um, Raymond Deary, was one of the two people that the Trump team actually put forward to be appointed. And so this is, um, you know, this is somebody that the Trump team said, yeah, we would, this, this guy would be fine. Um, now, the special master has asked um, former President Trump's team to hand over specific information about files he claims that he declassified, and they're refusing to do that. And so, um, you know, I think we are we continue to be at a very, very challenging time in the conversation about um, uh, about documents and whether or not these highly classified documents were appropriately declassified and then whether or not, even though appropriately declassified, appropriately removed from, um, you know, a skiff location, a, a, a secure location right. where even even their declassified state, they contain information um, about about sources and methods that, um, you know, just matter a lot to the safety and security of the United States. So I just think there's a lot going on in this case. Um, it's a lot for us to keep up with. So um, thank you, Mark, for helping us understand it. Anything on any of this you want to add or um, or continue to amplify or something else you want to talk about? Because we have like two minutes left. Uh, I, I think a big <clears throat> a big point of the discussion with the special master and the Mar-a-Lago documents in general is we still really don't know the content of those documents. Um, we do know the FBI has made some claims about classification. We do know about leaks that have gone to the media that have suggested that there's a high level of classification material like you were referencing right there. Um, but there's an awful lot that we don't know. Um, and we also, this is, it's complicated politically uh, because we're getting closer and closer to the midterm elections and Donald Trump is repeatedly hinting that he's going to announce for the presidency. And all these things are kind of coming together. And I think this is by design from president Trump. Um, he knows that as a candidate, 
the Department of Justice is less likely to indict him because they really don't want to interfere directly with a, with a campaign, uh, a presidential campaign in particular. And so he's being sort of, uh, I think he's trying to delay this as long as he can so that he can then claim to be running for office, which then will give him another sort of obstacle he can put in the way of the Department of Justice. So, yeah, there's an awful lot that we don't know here. Um, and hopefully, relatively quickly, we'll start to learn some answers uh, because I think potentially it's an extraordinarily serious issue, but the potential is also there that maybe it isn't nearly as serious as we think. Mm-hmm. It could be much being made of nothing, and it could, it could. be much being made of something. So on right. this, um, I, I had a, a conversation with um, with somebody who um, who likened the the ability for somebody to just you know by their word declassify like really right. sensitive information right. to right. like the. The, the very nature of Jesus, like Jesus, like just in one fell swoop by coming from heaven to earth, totally declassified all the information. Like that is how we have access to everything, even the very throne room of God. So there you go. That was my that was my friend's attempt to, um, you know, to bring a little Christian conversation into this particular uh, situation. I don't know if it works entirely, but I kind of like it. I appreciate the levity of it. That's for sure. <laughs> All right. Um, revelation as declassification. I don't know. I don't know. It's, it's, you know, it's not special gnosis. Everybody has it now, right? It's available to everyone um, by the power of the Holy Spirit. There you go. I, I don't right. know. I don't, I don't know forget. if it works. I, I'll continue yeah. to mull it over and you do the same. How's that sound? That, that sounds good. I don't think it holds up in a court of law, but uh, no, it is no, yeah. that's okay. That's okay. Hey, thanks. Thanks brother for being here today. Um, we appreciate your time and, Um, and the conversations that we have with you and your thoughtfulness. That's Dr. Mark Caleb Smith, not an attorney, but a professor at Cedarville University. Um, Joins us every couple of weeks to help us understand what's happening at the intersection of politics and our faith as Christians in the United States. Thanks. Thank you, Carmen. Take care. Absolutely. Hey, let's, um, let's take a moment for some Upwards with Max Lucado. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LeBurge. I'm just a nobody Trying to tell everybody All about somebody Who saved my soul All right, Anne is asking a really good question. Um, Hey, um, Carmen, didn't other presidents take documents? Okay, so here's how I understand it. Um, Technically, everything, everything that comes into, passes through the hands of... um, the the president of the United States during his or her tenure in office, everything, every document, every scrap of paper, every gift, every sheet and pillowcase and plate, all of it belongs to you and me, the people of the United States. So a little bit like um, uh, everything that I'm doing right now belongs to Faith Radio. Like you think it's my intellectual property, but actually, you know, they're paying me to do this job. And so it's all theirs. It all belongs to them. So any and all documents belong to the National Archives when the president leaves our office. So the archives can grant permission for a former president to have access to certain things, documents, pieces of artwork, gifts that were given uh, to him or her when they were in office. But they still don't own those things. They still aren't their things. They're still our things. They're just borrowing them. And that's so everything that's in every presidential library across the country still technically owned by the National Archives and is on loan to those presidential libraries. Well, I mean, some of the stuff in the presidential libraries, you know, were belonged to those presidents prior to their tenure as president. 
or or came into their possession afterwards. So it's only stuff that they they touched, uh, said and did and took hold of when they were actually serving as president that um, that's under this, you know, this question mark about whether or not it, it should have been in a, in a particular place and um, and whether or not it was appropriately there. And so the the classification issue is an issue. The basic possession of the documents um, is uh, is an issue. So uh, there you go. It's a complicated. I think it's suffice it to say it's a complicated mess. It's a complicated mess. Um, and they're working to sort it out. Um, hey, do you have big dreams or small dreams? Do you br- do you dream big or do you dream small? I think both are faithful. We're going to talk with Seth Lewis next. His new book is Dream Small, The Secret Power of the Ordinary Life. Wow, doesn't that sound great? That our ordinary lives have secret power? That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Do you dream big or do you dream small? Seth Lewis is joining us now. Uh, He's an elder in Middleton Baptist Church on the south coast of Ireland. He's involved in a partnership of local Irish churches who work together to plant new churches and provide provide Bible training um, through the Munster Bible College. He runs youth camps, um, and he and his wife, Jessica, have three kids, a turtle and a small garden. He writes weekly at sethlewis.com. Dot IE. Seth, welcome to Mornings with Carmen. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Is your turtle named Myrtle? That was um, my son's question about you today. <laughs> Our turtle is named Samwise. Oh, I love that. That's fantastic. It's actually, it's actually Samwise the Magnificent because my children decided he needed a long name because he's a small turtle. Oh, see, isn't that so good? I I have a long name because I'm a small person, but I have a big god. There you go. That's yeah, it. We had a we had a dog once who only had three legs, and for that reason, my dad thought he needed a long name, and so he was Ludwig von Schmittenhofer the Fourth Fowler. Wow, that I know that is a very impressive name. I know, right? I know. We called him Luddy. So, um, yeah, all right, a lot easier. It's so much easier, right? So talk with us, um, Seth, about uh, a small life and dreaming small. Because I I think that, right, that's super counterintuitive for people in the culture today. What does it mean to dream small? Yeah, absolutely. We always hear dream big, dream big, go big, do the biggest things that you can. And I'm not saying that big things are bad. Uh, but what I am saying is that actually when you look at the priorities of the kingdom of heaven, they don't actually register as big the way the world thinks about things. So you're talking about loving God, uh, being faithful. You're talking about loving people um, the way that Jesus did. And actually, the way that that works out most of the time looks really small. And it comes out in ways that look just insignificant to the world around us. Like, describe that to us. Like, I'm thinking here, you know, it's a small thing for Daniel uh, to say, I don't I don't I don't want to eat that food. Um, That seems like a small thing, but we actually know that that's a big thing. Is that kind of what you're pointing at? 
yeah well the world is always pointing us at um you know you you need to do something big and extraordinary and significant um and jesus talks about actually don't even pray where people are gonna be impressed by your prayer go in your closet and pray to the lord where god sees you nobody's going to be impressed by that nobody's going to think that's big but god says it's the important thing he says about giving to people you know don't do it in front of everybody where everyone's going to be so impressed with how much how generous you are don't even let your right hand know what your left hand is doing whatever and just just faithfully love other people he talks about loving the least of these the people that um nobody really cares about and nobody even hardly even notices they see them as too small too insignificant because they can't help you get ahead but jesus himself was the kind of person that spent time with tax collectors and sinners and he took criticism for that and this is the kind of direction our life should be taking as well we're talking with um, with Seth Lewis. The book is Dream Small, The Secret Power of the Ordinary Christian Life. And yes, we have copies to give away today. So if you'd like to enter the drawing for the copies we have on hand of Dream Small, text the word. I wish we were texting the word like small, but we're not. We're texting the word book to 877-933-2484. Text the word book to 877-933-2484. Eight, four, if you're interested in a copy of Dream Small, The Secret Power of the Ordinary Christian Life. Seth, talk with us about um, how you see our smallness as good news. Yeah, well, we like to think of ourselves as, as kind of the, the central thing, that the main character of our own story. Mm. Um, and everyone else kind of just gets to be supporting cast, and hopefully they can kind of help highlight how great I am. Uh, But the world isn't made that way. And if I'm honest, you know, I'm not made that way either. And if I look at things honestly, I'm really, really tiny. My life is pretty short. Um, Probably people won't remember me very long. But all of those things are actually good news because they show me that I am not the central character. And that's okay because it's okay because God is. And he cares about me he values me and he's told me that he has a place for me in his plan and his plan is going to be a lot more significant a lot more meaningful and it's going to last a whole lot longer than the biggest dream I could ever dream for myself the best story I could ever write for myself is not going to be anything compared to even the smallest role in God's plan in God's story so, yes, our smallness is a good thing. It's a good thing because it shows us how great God's love for us is and how what a privilege it is to be part of his plan. I love that. I mean, any part in God's plan is so much superior to um, a narrative I might write for myself or a life I might try to make for myself or, you know, try to make much of myself. I think that's so helpful, but it's also this huge temptation, right? I think that... I think that we believe a lot of things um, that aren't ultimately true um, about God and his calling upon our lives or what he expects of us. So could you talk a little bit about some of the ways that, you know, kind of the cultural dream big narrative actually tempts us as Christians to think wrongly about God and then to pursue wrong things in life? 
Yeah, well, it's easy. It's easy to do. I think we can kind of get the idea or just maybe just assume that God measures the, the value of things the way that we measure the value of things. Mm. So he's very impressed with if we have lots of followers online or we have we're very successful in, in whatever way the world is impressed with our success, that God is impressed by the same things. But he said very clearly that that's not what impresses him. He gave us a glimpse of, you know, Judgment Day. And he said it, he wasn't going to be counting our, our money and our uh, influence and, and these kind of things. He's going to be looking, how did we treat the least of these, the people that everyone else was overlooking? Because that is actually a great way to show if we are seeing those people the way that Jesus does, or if we're just using people to advance ourselves. So I think it's very easy to go on. No, no, go right ahead. Uh, I think it's very easy for us to to justify in our own minds, you know, to Christianize the world's dreams and say, well, if I just go really big, then I'll be so useful to God. Um, I'll be able to do so much more for God. Uh, and the thing is, we're valuing that big influence or that big um, thing um, more than what Jesus says is actually those big things are are not bad. It's not bad to have a big platform or whatever, but actually the main stuff is going to happen up close and personal. Um, if you're going to love people, you need to actually be involved in their lives. Um, you can you can help and you can encourage people from a distance, and that's good. But actually, the, the main stuff of the kingdom of God happens just right up close and personal, and it's going to have to be on a small scale. You're not going to be able to save everyone that way. You're not love everyone that way. You're too small, and that's okay. You have a place. And it doesn't have to be this big thing to be a really, really valuable thing. I love that. Um, I love the conversation about the value of people. Um, that is that is what you are alluding to and and pointing to um, the way God values people, and then I guess the question mark of whether or not we value people the same way God values people. Because it, it, if I have a big dream and I run over a bunch of people on on my way to getting there then it's not a godly and good dream, even if it seems to be a big kingdom dream. Um, so can you talk with us about valuing people as precious as God does um, and, and, and how that is reflected in dreaming small? Yeah, uh, well, I think where we learn this really and what we need to see is that this is, this is the shape of the gospel. Um, you know, Jesus, you look at Jesus, he is the greatest of everything. He has the, the most power and authority and fame and influence and treasure. And, you know, he has everything. He literally, you know, was the king of heaven. And he left that throne and he came down to serve, to give his life, to humble himself and to serve the, the lowest um, of humanity. Well, I mean, from his perspective, we're all really low. The distinctions between us don't really matter that much. Um we're all way below him and he came down to serve us and he washed people's feet and told us to do the same. And he served the tax collectors and the sinners and all of that. And he says, this is the shape. We need to be valuing people the way he did. And so whatever we have reached, whatever level we've attained, whatever success we have, it's not about that success. It's about what are, what are we aiming that at? 
Uh, maybe we have a lot, maybe we have a little, maybe we have a lot of influence, maybe we have a little, but we have people around us. We have opportunities around us that we can invest in people. We can pour into people. We can value them the way Jesus does, the way he showed us. And he said, the greatest among you will be your servant. Not the greatest among you will be the one who has the most people serving them, but the greatest among you will be your servant. I'm thinking, um, I'm thinking there, this, you know, the, the whole conversation about giving a little one, even a cup of cold water, um, that, that seems so small, right? But a cup of cold water to someone who is dying of thirst is literally life-saving and life-changing. And so we're talking about, um, dreaming small. We're talking about the secret power of the ordinary life. The book is Dream Small. We're going to continue our conversation with Seth Lewis in just a moment. If you want to enter the drawing for the copies of Dream Small, we have to give away today. Just text the word book to 877-933-2484. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. This is Faith Radio. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen. As you know, this is a rebroadcast of what we do on live radio every day. There's a lot going on at Faith Radio, tons of free resources just waiting for you at MyFaithRadio.com. Right now, we're inviting you to share your Faith Radio story. What do you love about Faith Radio? What do you love about Mornings with Carmen? How has this program changed the way you think or the way you live, the way you engage others in the conversations of the day? We really do want to hear from you. Your story could encourage someone else and certainly glorify God. So share what you love about Faith Radio by calling 877-933-2484 and leave us a message today. Again, thanks for listening. Dream small. Don't buy the lie. You've got to do it all. Just let Jesus use you where you are. Hey, we're all looking for significance and meaning in our lives. Um, The world tells us that significance and meaning come from dreaming big and achieving you know, great personal success and making a big impact. But the Bible says that our worth is found in actually knowing our creator, contentment found in discovering God's purpose for our lives. And that may mean that we need to dream small. Dream Small is the book. Seth Lewis is the author. He joins us today, The Secret Power of the Ordinary Christian Life. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LeBurge. And yes, we're giving copies away. So you can text the word book to 877-933-2484. Seth, let's talk about what success does look like um, in the Christian life. How how can a Christian know that they are being successful? Well, I mean, Jesus said that the greatest among you will be the servant of all. I think our life has to be the shape that his was. And it doesn't mean that having a lot is is bad in any way. Jesus had the most of anybody, but he it's the point is how we use it, not how much we have, but how we use it. And at its heart, success for a Christian really is about being close to God and overflowing with his love into loving others. And that may look very different in different contexts, may look um, very different in different lives, but it will always be, um, we will not define our success by the, the tools and me- measurement systems that the world uses, that it has to be big, it has to be extravagant, whatever, um, it's going to be really be a, a life of self-sacrifice, of giving, of being generous with the love God has given us and serving others. That's how the pattern that Jesus laid down for us. The greatest among you will be your servant. And we serve others however we can. 
which is really, really encouraging because what it means is that doing the most important things in the kingdom of God, that is something that anyone can do because we can do this from wherever we are. We don't need a big platform to do the most important things in the kingdom of God. You can do it right where you are with the people right next to you. Hmm. I'm thinking um, of a lesson that I learned. I, I feel like I was in college when um, when somebody handed me a copy of um, The Practice of the Presence of God by Brother Lawrence. And that, right, that moment by moment, you know, hey, when I'm peeling potatoes every single day or when I'm making porridge every single day or when I'm changing diapers Every single day when I'm packing lunches and making beds and doing laundry and cleaning the house every single day, when I'm doing whatever it is that I do every single day, um, I can do so recognizing that um, not only am I in the presence of the living God and have this precious time with him, um, but that I can do what I'm doing unto his glory even as I serve others and that by serving them, I am actually um, fulfilling my purpose in that particular moment. But that seems so small. That seems so small in a world that tells us that we have to be big. And so how I like, like, let's help, let's help each other. I don't know, feel how great it is to just be in the presence of the living God moment by moment, regardless of whatever the task is that's in front of me to do. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. It, and it, that is, that's where it's at. But also to remember that the living God actually does most of his work in ordinary ways. Mm-hmm. He says that he's, you know, our, our shepherd, the good shepherd, and he's leading his children through the valley and he's providing water and food and he's binding up the, the wounded and all of these, you know, the jobs that the shepherds do are, you know, really ordinary and um, often kind of overlooked kind of stuff. That's the kind of way that God provides for us. He said, give us, you know, to ask him, give us this day our daily bread. So he's the he's one that does, that provides for us in, in a million small, ordinary ways every day. And we can reflect his care for others, his love for others, by doing those small, ordinary kinds of things for others and doing them by and seeing the value of that. Uh, God himself does that. For us, we can we can value that and we can lean into that, doing those kinds of things for others. Hey, Seth, in the minute we have left, would you give a word of encouragement to somebody listening right now who um, feels like an overlooked cog in whatever system it is of which they are a part and remind them um, how their value and how precious they are and the importance of whatever small thing it is God puts in front of them to do today? Yes, lift up your eyes, lift up your eyes and see that the system you're looking at is not the system that matters. The system that matters is the kingdom of God. And this is a kingdom that grows like a like an ordinary small little seed in a field and becomes something more wonderful than you can even imagine. And that's the kind of treasure we're getting. And it comes in ordinary things. So lean into that and love God and love the people around you faithfully and know that that is a treasure worth more than anything this world has to offer. All right, Seth, and before we let you go, um, what is growing in the garden? Um, Flowers mostly, some apples, some blueberries, uh, some herbs and things. Yeah, and a trampoline, but not growing. 
A trampoline. I love <laughs> children. Children, are, I often yeah. say, because we live, we live on a farm in middle Tennessee. And um, when people ask what's growing in the garden, I'll say, mm, lots of weeds. And, um, and I'm all right. So there's, there, there may be weeds in the garden, but there are children growing and they're, and they're quite healthy and happy. So there you go. So oh, blessings got, upon you. Go, yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Blessings upon you and Jessica and your kids and, and all the things happening in your life. Hey, you guys can connect with Seth online, sethlewis.ie. The book is Dream Small, The Secret Power of the Ordinary Christian Life. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LeBurge. This is Faith Radio. When's the last time uh, you read First Peter? First Peter is uh, the book that we're going to be reading together in our Reading the Bible Together series here at Faith Radio. And so we want you to join us. And so if you go to MyFaithRadio.com, you can um, sign up for our Reading the Bible Together reading plan through First Peter. You'll, um, If you sign up, we're going to send you a study guide and um, and there will be a daily podcast that will give you some in-depth uh, study alongside um, others. Angela Smith is going uh, to host that, and um, you, you, you will know the sound of the voice of the person on the first episode because it will sound a lot like me. All right, so go to MyFaithRadio.com and sign up to join us in the Reading the Bible Together um, in First Peter. So I thought we might uh, just read a portion of... Um, of the first chapter of First Peter here to whet our appetite for our reading the Bible together study. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Friends, that's who we are. That's the life we're living into. What a blessing to be God's people in this generation. We got another hour together, so stay tuned. We're going to unpack today's Growing Your Faith verse of the day from 1 John 4, 7 and 8. We're going to talk about the love of God and how it is manifest among us. We'll also uh, spend some time in the headlines of the day. Bring in the mind of Christ to bear because that's what we do here on Mornings with Carmen. Stay tuned. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.